0: you're joining with us uh, through live stream, we want to welcome you. We understand um, there could be lots of different reasons why you can't be here this morning. I just want to tell you, as Ed said, it's actually really nice out here right now. I mean, I'm just in a, in a shirt, and I'm really comfortable looking forward to what we're going to be doing here this morning. So I want to invite you now to get your Bibles, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus, but I want you to turn to the book of Proverbs in chapter 5, because our reading from Exodus this morning is only five words but our reading from Proverbs 5 is going to be a little bit longer, and I want to encourage you to to focus on that. Alex, would you mind moving the TV just so that it's facing me a little bit? That would be great. Thank you. Let's stand together, and I'll read um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and then I'll jump right into Proverbs 5, beginning at verse 1. Okay? You You shall not commit adultery. Proverbs 5 verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your spring be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked instare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Lord, we are humbled by what we read this morning. This incredible warning from a father to a son to avoid that adulterous woman. And so Lord, I ask this morning as we consider this seventh commandment that we true would also humble ourselves, that we would be teachable, that we would be willing to hear what you say in your word and seek then to conform our hearts and our minds and our lives to what you desire. May we take, Lord, the things that we're looking at this morning, take them seriously and take them with a a passionate urgency to be obedient, not just for obedience' sake, but even for our own health's sake and for your glory's sake. So, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to your text, that your people will be strengthened, shaped, and fashioned to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's not working. In 1631... There were two royal printers, Robert Barker um, and Martin Lucas, and they printed over 1,000 copies of a version of the King James Version with the idea that the Word of God would be more available in people's homes. It was just a really a wonderful idea, obviously, a progress as far as having the Word of God available to people. A year later, however, King Charles I was so angry with them that he ordered every copy of their Bible to be gathered and burned. And he also pushed for their execution. But the courts wouldn't allow it. And instead, they stripped Barker and Lucas of permission to work in the printing business and to pay a fine of 300 pounds, which would be like one year's wages. Why all the fuss? They had mistakenly left out a key word in a key text. In their addition to the King James Version, Exodus 20.14 read, Thou shalt commit adultery rather than thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, we, we, we snicker a little bit, but they, it cost them their careers, almost their lives. It was a small mistake but a costly mistake. And friends, not only in translation, but really in what we want to say as a metaphor for what the cost is in life. There's also another typographical error in that version in Deuteronomy 5.25, which gives evidence that Barker and Lucas's edition actually was sabotaged. It wasn't actually them and their neglect. Someone went in and apparently did some things because what's put there is so foreign to what a printer would actually put there. And today, there are only a few copies of this version. It's called the Wicked Bible. Now, it's a reminder, friends, of a couple of things. First of all, that Exodus 20.14 is a very important text not to be taken lightly. Secondly, that there will always be those who want to undermine what God is saying in this text. Now, when you bring up the Ten Commandments to a, I say a person out there that might have some inkling about you know, biblical Christianity or things like that, one of the things that they, they think in their mind is they think of the Puritans. In their mind, the Puritans were these people who looked at life through the, the strict legalism lens who are always suspicious of one another. In fact, one has said a Puritan is someone who lives with the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And I think actually we get more of that from literature. If you've read like The Crucible or The Scarlet Letter, you have this kind of daunting perspective of of the Puritans. But friends, that's so foreign to what is true but that is how an ungodly society repackages the past to frame Christian religion as oppressive and offensive. And so they present the Puritans as pious prudes and religious disciplinarians suspicious of laughter and downright opposed to worldly pleasures like food and friendship and sex. And friends, when we look at church history, we find some strange beliefs held by a number of different people, in particular on this topic. For example, um, Tertullian and Ambrose in the first couple of centuries of the church wrote that they prefer the extinction of the human race to its propagation through sin. And by sin, they meant the actual act of intercourse. And that's shocking, isn't it? I mean, just reading your Bible, that just shocks you. It's like, they're not reading everything correctly here. Augustine once communicated that the sexual act was to be had only for the purpose of childbearing. And in the Middle Ages, the time right before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was the one who propagated and said that virginity and celibacy was uh, was preferred and even favored by God over marriage. And that is why, as a result of that thinking, um, monasteries where the monks were and, and convents where the nuns were gathered was promoted. So all these things are happening in church history, and it's important for us to realize that from church history, there are things that were, that were mobilizing and were commonplace and in, in thinking, and then the Reformation came, <laughs> And there was this wonderful revival for the Word of God and getting it in the hands of people and people beginning to actually read it and see what it says. And what we find is that the Puritans were the ones, just shortly after the Reformation, who came back and reaffirmed the biblical understanding of marriage and sexual relations in marriage. And not only uh, as as an option or a necessary evil, but instead as a glorious gift from God. So the truth is, the Puritans were far from prudish. In fact, if you go back and look at the size of their families, you have to say they had to have enjoyed at least a number of occasions together. Now, Leyland Ryken, in his book, Worldly Saints, the Puritans, as they really were, says this. The Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed in the cultural history of the West, The Puritans devalued celibacy, glorified companionate marriage, affirmed marriage, uh, uh, married sex as both necessary and pure, established the ideal of the wedding and romantic love and exalted the role of the wife. Now you're reading all that and you're like, well, wasn't that just the norm? And the answer is no. Marriage was not typically because of love. And you had a duty to your husband to make sure that you were bearing children. And so the attitude was so different, but the biblical pattern was revived by these Puritans. So don't let the society today fool you. that the church has always been prudish about this. It hasn't. And quite frankly, the Reformed tradition is is what brought things back to where they needed to be. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, so this is right on the heels of the Puritan era, says in chapter 25 and, and section two, marriage was ordained for the mutual health of a husband and wife, for the increase of humanity with legitimate offspring, and for the prevention of immorality. So friends, we, we need to see, Might want to say, a, a backdrop to this topic. There's an interesting connection to the Puritan revival of the biblical marriage and family and their love of an often forgotten and neglected book of the Bible. If you look through the history of the church, you will find that it is during the era of the Puritans that it explodes in the arena of Bible studies and commentaries for the Song of Solomon. (laughs) And just let that sink in. In fact, you can hardly read a Puritan without somehow and in some way bumping into a quotation from the Song of Solomon. Now, let's just read a little bit from the Song of Solomon. You may not even know where it is, right? I understand that. Right, look at Proverbs and go to the right, you know. Song of Solomon chapter 1 verses 15 through 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Now, friends, this poetic imagery going on there, this is in the Bible. And, friends, part of the problem is that we as the church have somewhat reacted to the the vulgar kind of attitude towards sex in our world and are somewhat afraid and have been afraid to even talk about sex. In fact, some people might even say, well, I don't know if I want to go to hear Pastor Rod speaking on adultery um, because I don't want my kids to hear this. But the thing is, your kids need to be brought up to speed you know, at the right place in the right way because of these issues. Why? Because the Bible does. Now, having said all that, an honest look at Scripture reveals that there's nothing prudish about the Bible when it comes to the subject of sex in marriage. And the Puritans, well, rather than squelch the joy and sunshine of sex, they let it shine brightly as an example for us to follow. So this morning, uh, here is my proposition with the seventh commandment. God is calling on his children to avoid any and all forms of adultery so as to embrace with vigor the sanctity of marriage. So God is calling on his children to avoid any and all forms of adultery so as to embrace with vigor the sanctity of marriage. And So what we have here in, in that proposition is really a negative and a positive put together. The negative is what we find in this seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But there's, a, there's the positive side to that. So, so what needs to happen? Well, cultivating marriage as the, the, the a beautiful uh, um, administration that God has given for man. Now, in order to understand the seventh commandment, we need to begin by looking at the biblical foundation of marriage. That'll be the first section we look at. Then we'll turn to consider the dangerous fault lines of adultery. And finally, we'll take some time to consider the determined fight against immorality. And it's worth remembering that this commandment In its context, in keeping the seventh commandment, we seek to honor God, we seek to honor the family, and we also seek to honor our fellow man. So, all these things are working together. Let's jump now into the biblical foundation of marriage. Now, we don't have time to expound on every aspect of marriage, but just enough to give us a lay of the land of what it is from a biblical perspective. And really, there's two passages. That, uh, that we can turn to that that give us this framework for marriage. Genesis 2, 24, and Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And Matthew 19 actually quotes Genesis 2. So that's, we're going to turn to Matthew, uh, sorry, Matthew 19, I should say, 4 through 6. We're going to turn to that passage, and we're going to use that as our guide for this first point. If you've ever been to a wedding ceremony that I've done uh, what I'm saying here really is, is what is contained there. I view marriage, uh, or marriage ceremony, wedding ceremonies as an opportunity to proclaim what God's word says, but also to show people the gospel. And so this ultimately is kind of like this, the seed of what I would do at, um, at a wedding ceremony. So Chris and Mariah, even though you weren't listening when you were getting married, you can hear it again, okay, just so you know that. All right, thank you. First of all, let's read the passage, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. It says, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them, talking about Adam and Eve, from the beginning, made them male and female? And He said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, I just want to highlight three things that just come out of this text that help us to give a foundation of marriage. First of all, I want you to hone in on this phrase or this statement, the two shall be one become one flesh. Marriage first of all is companionship. It's companionship. Two people who've been living their lives by themselves come together in marriage to be one flesh. And here's the mystery they become one flesh at the point of that marriage union. And then they are to become one flesh as they live out their lives together, right? I mean, this is kind of the mystery. It's kind of like you are holy, but pursue holiness. So if you're married today, you are one flesh, but you're pursuing one flesh, right? And you're doing that in physically, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. And growing up, I remember playing with Plato. Of course, in England, we called it plaster scene. Same idea, but you had two different colors, you know, red and blue, and I would play it and do different things and stuff like that. But of course, once you get the red out and the blue out and you start playing with it, what happens? It all kinds of mix together, right? And so, you know, it's time to put it away. You know, you have those little plastic containers. You're saying, well, I, I can't put all the blue in there and I can't put all the red in there. So they just all kind of come together into this kind of like gray, purplish, horrible blob, and friends, there's a sense in which that's what happens in marriage. Not that you turn into a gray, purple, horbish blob, right? But the, the point is you have these two individuals that are coming together, and as, as they become one flesh, anytime time you try and separate them, it's going to be damaged, it's going to be painful, it's going to be heartache. And, and friends, it's just, it's just a way to kind of see this. They have become one flesh. They are companions together. Secondly, marriage is commitment. They're told here, um, verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his his wife. Of course, the old English would be leave and cleave, right? But there's a a changing of responsibilities. They were once under the authority of their parents and now coming together. They are coming together to, to work together as husband and wife, committed to one another and leaving parents and joining or literally holding fast. And that means holding fast through thick and thin, through difficulties and trials and heartaches and sadness. And if you've been married, you know that there's tons of times like that, right? And God uses those to strengthen you. But but it's 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 kind of like a, you know, that that bug that gets on your windshield when you're going on a long journey. Have you had that experience before? Maybe you're driving for eight hours, and all of a sudden you're driving away from your home, and there's this bug that's on the windshield, and you don't notice it. But um, it's maybe 15 minutes later, you're driving down the street, and there's this bee, and he's like holding on for dear life, and you're like watching to find out how long is he going to hang on there, you know? And then you start speeding up because you're trying to get him off there, right? You know, and try speeding up, and he's holding on, he's holding on tight. You're tempted to use the washer, you know, the windshield washers, but that wouldn't be fair, right? But he's He's holding on. And friends, that's, that's kind of a picture of what, what happens in marriage. They are to, what? Hold fast to one another in the midst of what they are experiencing. Third thing, marriage is companionship. It's commitment. Third thing, marriage is conflict. Oh, thanks, Pastor Rod. I really appreciate that. Thank you for the encouragement, especially at a wedding, right, for me to say marriage is conflict. But look, it's honest, And it's true, and it's reality. What does it say? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Why would Jesus say that? He would say that because there is pressure from man to undermine this wonderful union of marriage. It's a warning. Man, in all sorts of different ways, is seeking to undermine it. So, even from the beginning in the garden, yes, we realized that part of the serpent's intention wasn't just to get Adam and Eve to violate God's word in taking the fruit, but it was also to undermine and to create a division within the marriage unit. I mean, after the fall, you know, is, is Adam looking at Eve and saying, It was your fault, and she's saying, No, it was your fault. The problem is there was only one counselor there at that point in time, and it was biblical counseling. It was God speaking to them. No, you're both at fault here. Now, friends, marriage is conflict. And just be honest, if you've been married a while, there's conflict. And you've got to learn how to navigate that conflict. That's internal conflict. But there's also conflict that happens from the outside, seeking to undermine what you're trying to do in this God-ordained Union. So, and friends, an honest reflection of, of biblical marriage is two people, a man and woman, becoming one flesh, committed to one another, living out their marriage in a society that's trying to tear them apart. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what he's saying here. So you know what you got to do? You've got to look up. you got to trust God. you got to fill yourself with his word. You've got to surround yourself with people that encourage you to do the things that God wants you to do not just isolate yourself. So friends, just with that foundation of marriage, we realize that there's this beautiful thing that God has created called marriage that the world and Satan is trying to undermine. So that moves us then to the second point, and that's this, the dangerous fault lines of adultery. Now here I want to to use the imagery of a dam, which must be solid in its foundation. So from that perspective, I'm thinking of of marriage as that solid foundation or that solid dam. But also it needs to be strong enough to fend off the pressure of hundreds and thousands of pounds of water. So in this this way, the dam is the commitment to the sanctity of marriage. Adultery uh, in its many forms are the fault lines that will undermine the integrity of that dam. So let's consider now adultery explained. At its core, adultery is unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. In other words, no one who is married is allowed to have sex with any married person except for his or her spouse. And no married person is allowed to have sex with anyone other than his or her spouse. So In a specific sense, adultery is a word uniquely tied to the unfaithfulness of the marriage covenant. However, the idea conveyed in the seventh commandment has a much broader meaning that will encompass premarital sex of any kind, cohabitation uh, without formal marriage, incest, homosexuality, and any other kind of sexual sin. And there's three words that will help us see that the category of adultery is not just limited to a married person committing sexual sin. It's, it's broader than that. So first of all, um, the first fault line that should be in your handout there, if you have your handouts, if not, I'll list it for you. The first fault line is the Greek word porneia, porneia, P-O-R-N-E-I-A, porneia. And I want to draw our attention to Mark chapter 7, And verses 21 through 23, hear what it says. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And the word here, porneia, is translated sexual immorality. All right, And this, is, this word porneia is a broad word that means uh, unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, or fornication. Uh, the, the New Testament Greek scholar by the name of James Edwards says this about porneia. He says, it can be found in Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice outside marriage between a man and a woman. Now, friends, here's, here's what I want us to see here as, as we're kind of beginning to define this. We might go to the Ten Commandments and say, you know, you shall not commit adultery. And we might just limit that, that, that kind of statement of adultery to simply marital infidelity. And it is, certainly includes that, but it's much more than that, Okay. It's also this word porneia is from where we get the word pornography, it's pornea and graphe put together and it's basically about you know, illicit writings or in our case today, it's a lot more movies and stuff like that, right? So this is the first fault line, there's pornea that is working away at the foundation, creating cracks where the water from this dam is gonna be seeping through, fault line number two. Um, This might be a a little hard if you're simply taking notes. The word is, in the Greek, arsinochoitas, all right, A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-A-I-S, A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-A-I-S. I'm giving that to you because, you know, you can go do a study on your own and you can see what it actually means, but I would draw your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 8 through 11. I want to to encourage you to turn with me to that passage. I think that one of the things that I'm learning as I'm studying through the Ten Commandments is actually how much of the Ten Commandments are not in the Old Testament and how much of them are in the New Testament, but we didn't realize they're in the New Testament unless we took time to study the Ten Commandments. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here we have Uh, The Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. And what he's doing here in these verses is he's running through the second table of the law, listing these kinds of sinful behaviors. So these are all these horizontal relationships here. And let's begin at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. Chapter 1, 1 Timothy, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and, the, and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now hear this. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, what commandment's that? Fifth commandment, right? For murderers, which one's that? The sixth commandment. The sexually immoral, which one's that? Seventh commandment, men who practice homosexuality, which one's that? Also a seventh commandment, enslavers, it's tricky. These are people that steal people and sell them into slavery. So that would be which commandment? Eight, all right? Liars and perjurers, nine. You see what he's doing here? He's going through the table of the law here. And he's identifying these characteristics. Well, nestled in here as a description of the seventh commandment in verse 10 is the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. And it's that last one there, men who practice homosexuality, which is this word, arsenocoitas. All right? And it's a word that, that really means what it's translated there men who practice homosexuality. So I'm trying to show you in the New Testament there is an understanding with even the organization of the Ten Commandments that there's far more going on here than simply what we would consider in our culture adultery. It's broader than that. It encompasses more than that. All right? The third fault line. The third fault line is the word epithumeo, epithumeo, E-P-I-T-H-U-M-E-O. And it's a word that is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Matthew uh, 5 and verse 27. This is when Jesus is, is expounding on the law. He's there, the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking. He talked about murder, and now he's talking about adultery. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All right? It's true, they have. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with Lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's this word lustful intent, epithumeo, and it means to desire, to covet, or to long for someone or something. And here in this context, it's emphasizing that the source of adultery is in the arena of the heart. And just like we saw last week that that Jesus takes murder away from just being a physical act, and he identifies it as this hatred that is taking place in the heart. In the same way, he says, there is this physical act, but the source of that physical act is actually taking place in the heart with these lustful intents. Now, what's interesting is what Jesus is saying here is not new thinking. It's not a new idea. In fact, if you want to go back to Exodus with me in chapter, in chapter 20 and verse 17, we're going back here now to the Ten Commandments. I want to show you how what Jesus is saying is actually rooted in the Ten Commandments. Here's what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. What is coveting? Is that a physical action? No, that's a heart issue, isn't it? And the idea here is you're not looking at your neighbor's wife and wanting her. He's talking about the same thing. This is a heart issue. Now, so these three words are helpful. There's other words we could probably turn to, but what I'm trying to show you from Scripture here is that we have this wonderful biblical foundation of marriage that is being undermined by adultery, but adultery is not simply a word that describes marital infidelity. It's talking about any sexual sin, anything outside of what God has prescribed sex to be in his word. It encompasses it all. Therefore, sexual immorality and homosexuality are the deeds we must avoid and lustful intent speaks to the thoughts we must avoid. All right? Now, having looked at uh, adultery, kind of trying to explain it, I would like to say now and consider adultery refined. And it's kind of like, you know, when you go to the, the eye doctor, they're like, you know, A or B, and you're kind of getting a little bit more focused. I want us to think through a little bit because it's not that God is just concerned about might want to say, our physical relationships together. There's something more going on here. And first of all, I'd like for us to consider this, that adultery is a metaphor for Israel's unfaithfulness. Throughout the Old Testament, this is what we find. We we find that any form of sexual sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage um, is certainly adultery, but we push it a little bit further because it's a word that describes then what Israel does when they wander away from God and they begin to intermingle, and intermarry with foreign people and ultimately bow down to their gods. And God describes them as an adulterous nation, an adulterous people. So there's a spiritual dynamic that's going on here. So it's a metaphor for Israel's unfaithfulness. And we see that in the book of Judges. There's this kind of cycle that goes on. Israel's doing well, and then they start to get friendly with the nations around them. And then they begin to to abandon what God says, and they start then to to want to marry people from other countries. And what ends up happening is as they do that, they begin to worship other gods, and ultimately they become enslaved to those people and they're in bondage, and then after years of bondage, they cry out to God for help, and God comes and delivers them. And I think there's like seven cycles that this, this goes on. So this is, this, this um, you might say, this adultering that's going on among the people. Interestingly enough, to bring this kind of uh, down, we could go to Jeremiah and even Ezekiel to talk about this topic, but I think one of the most vivid pictures is in the book of Hosea. Because Hosea is a prophet. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Well, why do you want me to marry a prostitute? Because I want my people to see what they're doing to me. And I want them to see that I still love them. <laughs> it's just a beautiful story, a beautiful picture. Because why? God is committed to his steadfast Love, his chesed, it's the Hebrew word. It's just a wonderful word. He is committed. We are the ones that wander. And when we wander, guess what? Yes, there may be consequences. There may be judgment because we don't listen to him. But God is still committed to what he has promised, what he has covenanted. And friends, that's important for us. But it's worth us knowing that adultery is a metaphor for Israel's unfaithfulness. Secondly, it's also worth us knowing that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And here we have Ephesians 5 and verse 25 and following. I'll quickly read it here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Aha, now he's rooting it back there into the Genesis passage. And then he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let, his, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in this passage, Paul Instructs us that we are to live our lives out of our union with Christ in such a way that husbands love their wives and wives respect their husbands. And he connects marriage to this picture of Christ and his relationship with the church. And really, there's three things that we learn here about Christ and his relationship to the church. First one, he loves the church, he loves the church. It says here, he loves it so much that he gave up his life for her. My friends, it's a beautiful gospel truth that marriage portrays. Secondly, not only does he love the church, but he sanctifies the church. He is at work purifying and cleansing her so that she is ready to be presented as holy. Holy. So he's at work. And again, part of our marriage relationship is to encourage one another to grow in godliness so that when we stand before God, we, are, we, we have made progress in our pursuit toward maturity. And third, not only does he love the church and sanctifies the church, but he nourishes and cherishes the church. He cares for the health and the well-being of the church. And so he provides in different ways, for the church. So the church is Christ's bride, and he is the bridegroom. And he is committed to being faithful to his bride, to love her, to sanctify her, to nourish and cherish her. Yet adultery is so often how the church responds, even when Christ acts in this way toward his own bride and what happens is that we allow the pressure of man's sinfulness to undermine the foundation of marriage by causing fault lines that will bring destruction so behind this seventh commandment is the sanctity of marriage within the family and within the community of God's children let me just pause here and say this that We need to do all we can as a church, even though we're small, to to encourage and help one another, in particular, if there are marriages that are struggling, if there are people that are struggling in that marriage relationship, to reach out and to listen and to nurture and to help. This is part of our responsibility as a church. So having looked then at the foundation of marriage and now having looked at the dangerous fault lines of adultery, let's transition now into what I'm calling the relentless fight against immorality. And I would like for us to first of all consider this, the cost of adultery. And friends, we're living in a culture, in a context where the battle rages for all of us on this topic. You can't go shopping or driving down the street without encountering some kind of advertisement seeking to lure you to a product using sex as the lure. I mean, you can even go to, you know, like AutoZone to, you know, and look for a battery for your car, and there's a picture of a woman sitting on a battery for crying out loud. You can't watch sport games with, with all the commercials or most shows on TV or Netflix or Amazon without the presence of pornea being celebrated in its many forms. And it's not just the visual aspect of it, but it's the thinking behind it. Have you ever found yourself watching a movie? and it has to do with you know, this relationship with people, and you find yourself wanting for this guy to, actually, you know, to, to, to be actually be connected to this girl, but this girl is actually married to another man. But your heart has been caught up with the storyline that you find yourself wanting what God says is offensive. And friends, the truth be told, this, this battle rages like a fire that we must contend with, and so as I was wrestling, kind of, what what image would be helpful for us as we think about this relentless fight against immorality. The, the thing that came to my mind, friends, was the California wildfires, and I'm imagining a family somewhere out, you know, in a in a kind of a an isolated rural place, and they are in their house and they're looking they're looking on the horizon. And they see the smokes. You know kind of growing up to the, to, to the sky, and they see the the, the the orange of the fires, and they, they know it's coming in their direction. And so they're anticipating what it is that they need to do. And friends, somehow and in some way, they must do all they can to protect themselves and to get through this potential raging fire. And friends, there's three things that come to my mind, and this is not necessarily in Scripture. These are just things that I think are helping me to put some categories together. First of all, there's fortification. Fortification. Knowing the danger that looks out there and the possibility of fire, trees close to the home, and so on, it should have been something that was thought of ahead of time and planned beforehand so that they are protected from the fires, that there's no, there's no uh, fuel in a sense that would, that would help the fire get close to them. This is all preventative maintenance, right? So when it comes to our fight against immorality, we're talking about things that should already be in place in your life because you know that the lure of sensuality and sexual, sexual sin is out there. So I'm talking about things like being careful about what you watch on TV, or uh, what you watch maybe at the movies. Being careful about what you're allowing yourself to listen to. Now, that could come in the form of music, through podcasts. It could be conversations you have maybe at work, if you're still at work. It means not putting yourself in difficult circumstances with a coworker. It means uh, you know, making sure that, that um, those that are around you are not pressuring you or putting pressure on you to enjoy something that you know would violate the seventh commandment. So you're already making decisions. You already have convictions. You already have some habits of practice that are put in place so that you, you know, in in anticipation of the fires that are there. So there are actions and behaviors that you've thought through so that you're not drawn into temptation. Now, friends, the... The antithesis of this example, or this, the, the, what I'm showing you, is found in the life of King David. I'm mean, just a cursory glance at what happened with him when he committed adultery with Bathsheba as he stayed at home when kings go to war. He lingered in looking at Bathsheba when she was there on the, on the roof, bathing. And he pursued her, even ignoring the fact that, that she was the wife of one of his trusted mighty men. Once, he, once, the, once the hook had, had sunk, he was all in. And he didn't care what people were saying around him. He didn't care who he was violating as far as um, his relationship with his mighty men. He wanted what he wanted. So friends, fortification is impor- important. Secondly, there comes a time though when your fortifications. Something has gotten through. (laughs) And and now it's it's time to fight, right? It's time to actually get out there and to do some work. And and again, I'm thinking about this illustration of this house in the wilderness. The fire is coming, and I'm imagining a man and his wife you know, with their garden hose just spraying down the house, uh, raking up the brush, all that kind of stuff. And as the fire might be creeping down, they're beating it as it comes close to the house. Why? Because they want to save their home. And they're working hard. And in the same way, when the fires of temptation rise up, we need to know that we need to fight and how to fight. And friends, we must not allow ourselves to be deceived into the thinking that our walk with Christ is going to be a walk in the park. I think some people come into their Christian life, they're like, you know, people have told them, you know, if you just trust Christ, everything will be okay. (laughs) And, And they come to faith in Christ and all of a sudden, and they're just not sure what to do. It's work, it's a fight, it's a battle. We can't just be thinking that we're tiptoeing through the tulips and everything is gonna be hunky-dory. You can look up hunky-dory in the dictionary to figure out what that's talking about. Friends, walking with God requires us to be wise and careful. It requires us saying no to sin and fighting against temptation. It demands that we put on the armor of God, and stand against the fiery darts of the evil one. So we fight with prayer. We fight with truth, of course, which is God's word. And we fight with the help and support of our fellow brother and sister. But friends, we fight. We fight. There's fire coming. There's danger. People's lives are at stake. So we fight. So fortification, fighting, fighting. And then sometimes we get to the place where the only option is fleeing. It comes a point when the fire is raging and the best thing for the family to do is to run before it's too late, before they're surrounded and there's no way out and the fire consumes them. Just using that image and illustration to help us understand there comes a point in time where we have to take drastic measures. And of course... Were reminded of the story of Joseph right who was consistently seduced or at least attempt, attempted to seduce by Potiphar's wife her her seductions were there and and it went on and went on and finally she she pressed even further and he said no and took off and even uh, even the resulting uh, being in prison in jail as you know didn't compare to the fact that he wanted to be a man of integrity before God and even before Potiphar his master. It meant more to him than giving in to immorality. But he fled, he ran. And so, friends, what we need to see is that there is a serious cost for adultery in its many forms. Now, I'm not making this up because this is this is the warning that Jesus gives. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to continue. Um, where we left off. We'll read verse 27, but we'll continue on through verse 30. And I want you to see the the radical, drastic nature of his words. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And notice what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. Is that radical? I mean, we're not talking about getting a knife and scalpel it out. This is like an urgent tear it out. For it is better that you lose one of your members than you, your whole body be thrown into hell. Then he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body go into hell. Friends, the danger of sexual sin is so serious that Jesus' answer is to cut off a limb or tear out an eye rather than be thrown into hell. The dangers of the fires of hell are at stake. Jesus here is preaching hellfire and brimstone, especially when it comes to the subject of sexual immorality. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? And he knows. He knows that this will destroy a marriage. It will destroy a home. It will destroy a life. And friends, in the book of Proverbs chapter 5, I would invite you to go back there. I know we're bouncing around, but I'm trying to I'm trying to put all this together in some way that we can see the weight of this, the cost of this. Proverbs chapter 5, this is the, the section that we read at the beginning before we, we started the sermon. And here's a father speaking to his son. Chapter 5, verse 11. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Why? Why? Why should you listen to me? Verse 3 For the lips of the forbidden women drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Oh man, she will be attractive. She'll know what to say. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. You see, here's the thing we don't see that, we see the honey. We see the sweetness of her lips, but we don't see the bitterness. We certainly don't see the sword coming at us. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. In other words, if you're, going, if you're with her, that's where she's taking you. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And friends, this is so dangerous uh, that, that Solomon here is saying it will cost you your honor, your years of life, your strength, and your hard work, and even your well-being. Continue reading at verse 8. Keep your way from her, and do not go near the door for a house, lest you give your honor to others. Your honor is at stake. And your years to the merciless. So even your years of your life are at stake. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength. So your strength is at stake. And your labors go to the house of a foreigner. All your labor, all that you've accomplished is at stake. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. You look back at all the ways that your sensual appetite, your, your sexual immorality, your adultery has created chaos and heartache and the damage that's happened to you. There's a cost, friends, for adultery. I remember when I was visiting um, Israel in 2006 and I remember going up to the Golan Heights and what you see there up on the Golan Heights, which is the northern part of, of Israel, is you see all these fields surrounded by heavy barbed wire And these signs everywhere saying, danger, keep out, mines. They're placed there in the 1950s and 1960s by Israel, Jordan, and Syria as they exchanged uh, the lines of of, uh, demarcation there. They, They say that it will take another 50 years to find all the mines so that the area can be safe to use again. Now just imagine... These minefields, there's signs that are warning you. There's barbed wire saying, keep out. Why would anyone want to venture in? Why would anyone think it's a good idea to hop the fence if you could do such a thing? In fact, I I think that if you were there and you saw someone climbing the fence to go in, you would run to pull them back. But friends, that is what Scripture is doing for us. It is saying adultery is like a minefield. You don't want to go into the field of adultery because you will be putting your life in serious danger. And if you don't listen to the warning, you will only have destruction and misery follow you. Oh, but it looks good. Oh. Destruction is just around the corner, friends. Here's the problem. Our society doesn't even believe that there's a minefield. (laughs) And they're trying to convince you that there's no minefield. And they're trying to convince you that this minefield is actually a good place to be. Who cares what anyone else thinks about you walking in this minefield? If you wanna walk in this minefield, you go ahead and do it and enjoy yourself. They don't tell you about the heartache and the suffering and the lives and the, the, the marriages and the children that are all suffering because of this. You can't take two pieces of Play-Doh and rip them apart and think that everything's going to be okay. Friends, which voice are you going to listen to? The voice of the culture or the voice of the creator? The voice of society or the voice of the Savior? When God gives us multiple warnings, it means that what he's warning you and me about is a serious matter. And as we have seen, it has eternal consequences. So friends, there is a cost of adultery. And now I would like for us to consider, having looked at the cost of adultery, transitioning now in this last point to the counsel for adultery, the counsel for adultery. And I wish we had more time. there's a lot that can be said about fighting against adultery or sexual immorality. Practical things like discipline your gaze so that when you're talking, speaking to men and primarily here, when you're talking to a woman, you're looking at her face or her eyes. Being accountable to another man about your struggles in the, area or in the, you know, the arena of sexual sin and maybe in particular the arena of pornography carefulness about your use of computer, the iPad, or even your phone, not allowing the culture to make you feel stupid for having practices that protect you from temptation. I'm thinking of things like the Pence rule, which was the Billy Graham rule, which I think there was a lot of people that carried out that rule. Why? Because it was wise. The society says, what an idiot, what's the problem? You must hate women. You know, it's, come on. Or practicing modesty because you want to be careful that you're not dressing so as to draw unnecessary temptation to yourself or to parts of yourself that you know are going to affect other people. But as we bring it to a close, there's three areas of counsel that I want you to take to heart and consider before God. First of all, sex is good and a beautiful gift, but it's not ultimate. Sex is a good and beautiful gift, but it is not ultimate. There's more to life than sex. But in fr- unfortunately, friends, our society is consumed with it. It's everywhere, and it's easy to be drawn into the lie that sex is the important thing. When sex is used in a commercial, it is saying that something. V- it's saying that this thing is valuable. Because it's sexy. So when you go to to look at a car that's being promoted to be on sale, and there's a scantily clad woman sitting on the hood, it's saying to the male buyer in particular, if you own this car, this is the kind of woman you can get. How foolish that is. But we believe things like that. Every person in this culture has bought into the idea that their value or worth is directly connected to whether they are sexually attractive or not. Culture's pumping that. Individuals in our society are beginning to define themselves as being sexual or not. The whole LGBTQ agenda believes the lie that your identity is bound up in your sexuality. They say, my sexuality defines me. Friends, that is not what the scriptures teach. We're not defined by our sexuality. It is an aspect of who we are, who God created us to be, but it doesn't define us. Hear this Our life is not over if we can't pursue our sexuality. And our life is not on hold until we have our sexuality. There are things that are far more important than sex. Don't get me wrong, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But it is not the ultimate thing. And if we have somehow drifted into thinking that it's far more valuable and ultimate than what it actually is, then we're going to be distorted in our thinking. We're going to be, we're going to be pulled in directions that, that move us contrary to what God wants us or where God wants us to be. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift, but it's not ultimate. We must say boldly, that it is not our sexuality that defines us. Secondly, secondly, I want to appeal to you to love and enjoy your spouse. Or if you're not married yet, live your life now with the anticipatory joy of loving and enjoying your spouse. God in his kindness has given the husband and the wife freedom to enjoy their sexuality to the fullest. I want to continue to listen to the words of Solomon in Proverbs 5 and verse 15 and following. Now, it's graphic in its poetic language. But it's important for us to read. And especially for, for those of us that are couples. Here's what it says, Proverbs 5.15. Proverbs 5.15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water on the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a gracious doe. Let her breasts fill you uh, at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her life. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? You see what he's saying here? In this relationship, there's freedom, there's delight, there's enjoyment, and you can can do all that with a clear conscience. So why would you go after a forbidden woman? When you have this wonderful gift, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul gives instructions regarding the husband and wife's sexuality. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should her own husband. The word have is a euphemism, therefore, the sexual intimate act. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does likewise. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again. The coming together again is not like, hey, let's do a high five. It's coming together, right? so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's saying, look, there's a problem in society. There's a temptation to sexual immorality. There's a a bent toward lacking self-control. So don't avoid that intimate relationship with your wife. Now, of course, a lot of the language in Scripture is written from from a male perspective isn't it so you want to be careful here that that wives are not feeling like well how come we're not it, it's you just, you basically just got to turn it around and, and say it's applying to you too all these instructions from a father to a son are applying then to a daughter obviously in, the, in in the nuance of where she's living out her life the writer of hebrews says let the marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So the emphasis in in Hebrews is regarding sexuality. In the context of of marriage, it is honorable. It is holy. But sexual immorality and adultery will be judged by God. So the bottom line here, friends, my encouragement to, to love and enjoy your spouse is this. Enjoy one another and delight in one another. Have fun in this arena. That's what God intends. And don't think of it as something dirty and icky. That doesn't come from scripture. The marriage bed, the the, the confines of the the union of husband and wife is a beautiful thing given by God. Third, third, we've looked at, the fact that sex is good and beautiful, but it is not ultimate. We've looked at love and enjoy your spouse. But now I want to encourage you to to look to the gospel. So I'm thinking here of struggling. I'm thinking here of someone who is facing temptation. Now, God gives marriage and sexuality as a gift, but hear this, we're broken people. We're broken and we're faithless, and we we by nature are faithless. We fail, and we have a bent toward uh, adultery. You will not pursue faithfulness in steadfast love, hear this, if you stay neutral. Why? Because there's always a fight. It's like, it's like that family, you know, just, you know, stepping outside and seeing the fire and saying, Dad's saying to the kids, look, there's a fire over there. Okay, what's for dinner, you know? No, there's a fire over there. We got to do something. Always got to be alert. Always got to be aware. Always got to be working on our walk with God and, and recognizing that the gospel is speaking into our lives. So we can't stay neutral because our sin nature is present and we have a tendency to run after selfish ambition and every lustful thought and every screaming sinful delight. And our hearts are never satisfied And they end up being barren and dry. And that is what Jesus says. We've already read the passage. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus says is that our hearts will not be satisfied with one glance. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, so on. Friends, when we're tempted to fight, we fight the battle in our hearts against our own sinful desires. Hear this, the devil didn't make you do it. You are actually fighting the enemy within And and God has given us the tools to fight the enemy within. This is not some Sunday school answer to a huge problem when I say, look to Jesus and the gospel. It is the answer to every problem. We just need to understand what that actually means. Jesus went to the cross to die for that lustful thought, that click on the pornographic website, that flirtatious conversation with the coworker, that emotional connection with that married man that you met at church or at some Christian gathering. And he says to us that when you are tempted and after we fall flat on our face in our battle with adultery, come to me. Because I love you with a steadfast love. You've made a mess. You've been sinful. But there is restoration. There is forgiveness. There is a way to take the mess and make something beautiful of it. Psalm 130 verses 1 through 4 say this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Friends, do you believe what God has said in his gospel? He knows your sin. He died for your sin. He forgives you of your sin. So draw near to God for help in time of need. And friends, sexual temptation is a time of need. And when you do turn to him for help, he will prove himself to be faithful. This is what we're told by God in Lamentations 3, and following. The steadfast love, said, love, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen to the wise and helpful words of the great theologian John Owen. He says, when someone sets his affections on the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as dead and an undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. So fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. So I'm not saying to you, beloved, just read your Bible and pray. I'm saying, truly look at Christ. Look at what he's done. Look at your sin in light of what he's accomplished for you in the gospel and live in and out of that. And when you begin to do that, the other things will will start to disappear. The temptation will seem to diminish. Why? Because he in all his beauty is shining in your heart. That's happening because you're fighting your way to put your affections on him. I always bring things to a close. I, there's three things. I don't have time to go through them all, but I'll just mention them briefly. You might want to write them down. Just consider a true confession. You know, David, when he committed sin with Bathsheba, and he's repenting, Psalm 51, uh, 51 verse 3 and 4, verse 4 in particular, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God loves it when we confess our sin. No matter how horrible the sin is, he loves it when we confess our sin. Confess. True confession. Secondly, a true conversion. Again, I draw your attention, not right now to look at, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul reminds his readers about their condition before Christ and what it is that happened to them at the moment of their conversion. And he lists the sexually immoral. He lists the adulterous. He he lists men who practice homosexuality. And he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Those are all things that happen at the moment of your conversion. (laughs) Covered by the blood of Christ. True conversion, believe it, and then a true comfort. And I will read this one, the end of Jude's little epistle. He ends with a prayer, and I think it's packed with something that we need here. He says, now to him who is able, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling." and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Yes, even when we have committed sexual sin. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Friends, delight in the promise that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless. Lord, we we come to you in somewhat, Lord, of a scratching the surface of this topic, but realizing, Lord, that your, your commandment to not commit adultery is not simply to squelch us down so that we are a people who don't have fun in life. But, Lord, you understand the heartache and the tragedy and the sadness, and the mass, Lord, that comes as a result of sexual immorality, in particular among your people. And, Lord, also in a greater community and society so it help us to see what adultery is in its broader context and help us to be people then who value the sanctity of marriage and want the marriages that you have given us to be the kind of marriages that you desire for them to be to fight for them to grow to fight for them to be nurtured to fight for them to be a priority to fight for them to have the time and the energy Help us, Lord, to be a community of believers who are encouraging one another with our marriages. And Lord, we pray that anyone this morning who might feel isolated or struggling, who is hurting, who, is, who needs help, Lord, would, would make that known to someone that they believe they could trust in our community, Lord, that we can, we can begin to see healing take place in marriages. And Lord, we can find restoration But, Lord, help us in all of it to see that you are a great God and Savior, that in spite of our sin, Lord, you have brought us to yourself. You have breathed new life into us, and you've set us on course, Lord, to to mature and to grow in the community of believers, but with your truth and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us then to, to take these things that you've taught us today and to strengthen us with them, and to shape us and mold us, Lord, in our unique situations, to be more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.